This morning's scripture comes from John 2, verses 11 through 22. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, as we come to your word now this morning, we recognize that we are in constant need. Lord, we need your spirit to open our eyes, our minds, our hearts to hear your word, understand it, and believe it. Lord, we need your spirit to show us Christ, our Savior, our only hope. And so now as we turn to your word, Spirit, would you help the meditations of our hearts, the words of my mouth, to be pleasing? Would you show us Jesus? And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, thank you to to Nick and and Adam and the leadership of Redemption for inviting me to come share the word with you. Um, I was here about a year and a half ago, and so it's it's nice to, to be back and visiting you all again. I uh, really appreciate the, the opportunity to, to worship with you all. Um, it wasn't just, you know, a, a, just a little over a week ago, somebody walked into a Jewish congregation and, and opened fire. And as we just read, 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked into a, a Jewish congregation, but he was there for a different reason. See, this text, what we just read, shows us that Jesus does not condone. He does not condone those who bear his name to exercise violence and hatred towards other people. What this text shows us this morning is that Jesus Christ is the place where we meet with the living God. Jesus Christ is the place where we meet God. And so we're going to look at this text in in three points. Um, First, you you have them there on your sermon notes. We're going to look at... The fact that in Jesus Christ, the Lord confronts us in our sin. If we're going to stand in God's presence, if we're going to worship him, our sin needs to be dealt with. And so when we see Jesus, when we meet with God, our sin is brought to light. Secondly, in Jesus, the Lord is with us. Jesus calls himself the temple. That has profound implications for what it means to be a Christian, 
I think, and what it means to be at church this morning. And then thirdly, in Jesus, the Lord atones for our sins. Our sins aren't just confronted and brought to light to make us feel terrible. Our sins are confronted and brought to light so that we might repent and turn to the Lord who actually pays for our sins for us. So that's, that's where we're heading. We're going to yeah, hopefully see that, that, that Jesus truly is our, our only hope. Jesus truly is the, the place and the only place where we can actually have a saving encounter with the Lord. Don't you find it interesting that verses 11 and 12 tell us that Jesus goes to Capernaum with his mother and his disciples and his brothers, and yet verse 13 only mentions Jesus. Jesus, his brothers, and his mothers and his disciples are heading up to Jerusalem, going from Capernaum. And then verse 13 tells us, and then Jesus entered into the temple. John is putting a spotlight on Jesus Christ for us and saying, pay attention because what's about to happen is important. What's about to happen is significant. Jesus is about to do something. And as Jesus walks into the temple, what does he find? He finds essentially kiosks and ATMs, right? (laughs) He finds money changers. People selling merchandise. Uh, the Passover was near, which means thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews were pouring into Jerusalem to give sacrifice at the temple. And so, practically speaking, it would make sense for the Jews in Jerusalem to have sheep and goats and oxen and doves for sale when you got to Jerusalem, because just practically speaking, you wouldn't be able to take those animals with you on long journeys. Some people travel days at a time, weeks, to get to Jerusalem in order to worship for Passover. So it's not just the fact that they were selling animals. Jesus finds them selling these animals in the temple, in the place where God is supposed to be worshipped, in the place where people come to meet with the Lord Rather, they're met with price tags, discounts. (laughs) They're desecrating God's place of worship, aren't they? They're treating it as just a common marketplace. But it goes deeper than that. These Jews, these religious leaders, had set up shop in what a, what a lot of scholars call the court of the Gentiles, the very outer court of the temple. And if you look at the, the plans for the first temple as God directed his people in the Old Testament, you'll see that there was no distinctions between Gentiles and Jews or men and women. But as after the first temple was destroyed and the Jews were beginning to rebuild their temple under Herod, they instituted these different sections. And this outer court was called the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles weren't allowed any further. In fact, there was a sign posted on the threshold in between the court of the Gentiles and the inner courts where the Jewish women could go, where the Jewish men could go, ultimately where the high priest could could go once a year to give sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. There was a sign on the threshold in between these two courts that warned any Gentile from going further, lest he or she incur upon themselves the wrath of God for going where they weren't supposed to go. The court of the Gentiles was the only place the Jews allowed the Gentiles to worship 
And that's where they set up shop. When we read other accounts of Jesus' interaction with the Jews in the temple, he gives us a little insight into why he was so angry here. Into why he was compelled to make a whip and drive these money changers and these salesmen out of the temple. Jesus says, in, in the other places, in Mark chapter 11, for example, he says, it has been written, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. For all the nations. Gentiles. And yet here are God's people standing in the court of Gentiles, not allowing them to worship, but overtaking that place in order to sell animals to make profit. And Jesus will not tolerate it. We just read in that catechism, Jesus will not tolerate sin. Jesus will not tolerate his people to discriminate against others. You see, the the Jewish people at the time, especially the Jewish leaders, had twisted God's word, had convinced themselves that they were the specially chosen people to the exclusion of all others. They had forgotten that God had blessed them to be a blessing, that God had called them, put his name upon them, made them his people in order that they might be a light to the nations. Instead, they used their position, they used their status to exclude the Gentiles from worship. And Jesus won't have any of it. And so it makes me wonder, church, what kinds of signs have we put up? Not explicit signs that say you're not welcome here, but what signs have we put up as a church That when people come into our presence, they automatically feel and know they're not welcome. What subliminal requirements have we put on ourselves that says you must be like this in order to be a full member of our community? Is it your political status? Who you voted for or didn't vote for? The kinds of things you advocate? Is it our skin color? What we look like? Is it our economics? How much money you make? How well off you seem to be? Where we send our kids to school? What is it that we are putting up for people? Because brothers and sisters, the church is meant to be a refuge for the world, from the world. In this place, nobody should feel or experience the kind of power-grabbing, power-hungry, greedy dynamics that we experience in the world every day, that we see happening in the world every day. When we come into this place, we come into God's place. This is a place for the nations, for all people to worship. This is a place where Jesus Christ says all are welcome. And yet when he walks into the temple, he does not find all being welcome. And so he confronts 
consumed with zeal for the purity and the, the holiness of God's people, Jesus drives those who are disrupting that out of the temple. And Jesus confronts us in our sin as well. And you know that they're caught. <laughs> Just like all of us, when we're caught in sin, what do the Pharisees do? What do the, the religious leaders do? They ask for some kind of credentials. Maybe if Jesus is just some ordinary guy off the street, we don't have to listen to what he's having to say. Yeah, we know he's probably right, but we'll go ahead and ask him, what sign are you going to give us in order to show us that, you know, you really have the authority to tell us what to do? Isn't that how we all operate when we're caught in sin? When I'm being rude to my wife or I've snapped at my son, Owen, because he's tried to grab food and dump it on the floor for the thousandth time. And Stephanie looks at me and says, you know, you're being a little short with him. What's my first response? It isn't usually, you know, you're right. I need to humble myself and ask for Owen's forgiveness. It's usually, well, you were doing the exact same thing, weren't you, yesterday? Who are you to tell me, right? What's your credentials? What gives you the right to tell me that I've sinned? Isn't that exactly what the Pharisees are doing here? You know that they're caught in sin. You know that they're guilty. And yet they try to find any and every way out of that guilt, out of actually being held accountable for what they've done. You see, when Jesus comes into the temple, he's not coming as just some ordinary guy off the street. Jesus is coming as the prophet of the Lord. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses gave the people a promise. There is coming a day where the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. And when that prophet comes, it is to him that you will listen. When that prophet comes, he will be the fullness and the final word from God to you. And already in John chapter 1, we've been, we've been introduced to the concept of the prophet. When John the Baptist came on the scene preaching and teaching and warning people to repent for the kingdom of God was at hand, people came to him and asked him, who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, no. Are you one of the other prophets? No. Are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet who was coming into the world? No. And it's not until John chapter 7 that we actually see that Jesus is the prophet. Jesus preaching and teaching and refuting and healing and bringing God's kingdom into this world. As the people reflect on that, they say, truly, this is the prophet. Jesus is the one that Moses was talking about. And as Jesus walks into the temple that morning, he doesn't come as an ordinary guy off the street. He comes as the prophet sent from God to call his people to account and to bring his people God's full word. Jesus is the prophet who confronts us in our sin. But he's not just the prophet. Jesus shows us that he has the authority to say what he's saying because he's actually God in the flesh. You notice what he says here, verse 16. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. 
my father's house. Just a couple of chapters later, Jesus will almost be killed for saying that God is his father. Why? Because to call God your father in the way Jesus is here is to make yourself equal with God. See, when we meet with Jesus, when we are confronted with Jesus Christ, we're not confronted with just some ordinary guy off the street. We're not just confronted with a prophet or even the prophet who is sent by the Lord. We're confronted with the living God himself. Jesus stood in that temple as the Lord in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, where Malachi, seeing the end, says, on that great day, the Lord will come suddenly into his temple. And when he comes suddenly into his temple, he will call his people to account. Malachi was writing in a time where the people of God were going completely off the rails. They were forgetting the Lord. They were actually thinking of themselves as no longer specially chosen by God because they thought God didn't care about them anymore. And Malachi writes to tell them, no, listen, there is a day coming where the Lord will come suddenly to his temple. And yes, he will call his people to account, but he will also bring the good news. He will also bring healing. He will bring restoration. Jesus is so concerned that his people can worship him. That even if others are excluding them from worship, he'll go and find them. He'll go and remove the hindrances. He'll go and remove the obstacles. If you're here this morning and you feel like something or someone is blocking you from worshiping the Lord, take heart. The Lord is seeking you out. Not the other way around. The Lord came into the temple to make sure that his people could worship there. The Lord comes into our life to ensure that we can worship him. But if we're going to stand in God's presence and worship, our sin must be confronted. We must take an honest look at ourselves. We must take an honest look at the way that we interact with others. We must take an honest look at the way that we think about God. And we must acknowledge, like the religious leaders here failed to do, that yes, we are sinful. Yes, we need God. Yes, we need his grace. And then we can turn to Jesus and see that he provides all that we need. And the second thing that we're going to look at here, in Jesus, the Lord is with us. Jesus calls himself the temple. And as is pretty common in, in the book of John, uh, he wasn't really quite understood. <laughs> Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And they're thinking to themselves, hmm, it's taken 46 years to build this one. So who is this guy? Uh, what's, what's going on here? Uh, is Jesus just crazy? Does he not know what he's talking about? Well, thankfully, thankfully, John gives us an interpretation, he's talking about the temple of his body. The temple was the, was the only place that you can meet with God. The temple was the only place that God's presence dwelled. 
And so don't you find it interesting that Jesus is standing in that place, and yet he calls himself the temple. He's telling us something. He's telling us that because of Jesus, we don't have to make pilgrimage to this or that place to find the Lord. That actually, the temple has come to us. What does John say in John chapter 1? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And that word dwelt that John uses actually calls us all the way back to the tabernacle that followed the people of Israel around as they wandered through the wilderness. The place of God's holy presence. The temples come to us. Jesus Christ now is where we stand in God's presence. It's no longer on this hill or that hill he tells the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, who is so ashamed of the sinful life that she's living, that she decides to go to get water in the hottest part of the day so that she doesn't have to see anybody. Jesus seeks her out and tells her, no, it's no longer in this place or that place. It's in me. Brothers and sisters, we need to recapture our understanding of where God is in our worship service. We come to church, we sing, we hear a sermon, we participate in the Lord's Supper. And for a lot of us, myself included, we can go through the entire service thinking, you know, I went to church, I sang some great songs, but where was God? Where is God in this worship service? He's not sitting in a chair. He didn't walk in. Brothers and sisters, God makes himself known through his word. As we hear his word preached, he is speaking to you. As we see his word and participate in his supper this morning. We see and we hear that the Lord is among us. Because of Jesus, the Lord is with us wherever we go. And as we gather as a church, he makes himself known to us. And this shows us that as we come, as we come in faith, as we look forward to that day where he will return, when he returns, that beautiful promise will finally come true. God will make his dwelling among men and women. We will be with the Lord. He will be with us forever. There will be no sin to to hinder us. There will be no sadness, no grief, no hatred, no discrimination. When the Lord finally comes back, he will be our temple. He will be our light. He will be our life. Jesus is telling us that right here. In a very real sense, you didn't bring yourself to church this morning. I know for us who have young kids, it does feel like it's a mission just to get to church halfway on time. I think Stephanie and I are 10 minutes late every Sunday, usually. Um, But in a very real sense, we didn't bring ourselves to church this morning. The Lord brought us to church this morning. The Lord seeks us out. The Lord gathers us. And the Lord gives to us his grace and his word. In Jesus, the Lord is with us. And that might make some of us nervous. 
Because if in Jesus the Lord confronts us in our sin, we can't stand in God's presence without being painfully reminded of our own inadequacy, our own weakness, our own sin. And if in Jesus we stand in God's presence, well, how can I stand in God's presence as a sinful person and expect to hear anything other than depart from me? We just read it this morning in the New City Catechism. How can we not expect anything other than wrath? Well, because in Jesus, the Lord doesn't just give us his presence. He atones for our sins. He atones for our transgressions. When the Jews come to Jesus and ask him for a sign, what sign do you do? Jesus says, destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise up. What's he talking about? He's talking about his death and his resurrection, obviously. If you noticed the verse that Jesus' disciples remember comes from Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. And I just encourage you today after service, just go home and read Psalm 69 and try to find all of the different times that that psalm is used in reference to Christ's death in the New Testament. It's a lot. It's actually the most quoted psalm in reference to Christ's death in the entire Bible. Zeal for your house will consume me. It says, and the very next line says, and the reproaches of those who reproached you fell upon me. Those are Jesus' words in Psalm 69 that his disciples remember. Jesus standing in the temple consumed with zeal and wrath against the sin of those who are blocking worship. Jesus standing in the temple consumed with zeal for God's house tells us that he himself will be consumed by it. That on the cross, the very zeal that he expresses here is going to end his life. For you. For me. For anyone who would come to him in faith, in repentance. Jesus Christ walked into that temple 2,000 years ago, not to kill but to announce that he would be killed for his people. That's how much he cares about us, church. Jesus isn't content to leave things to us. He isn't content to say, here's the way, come follow it if you can. No, Jesus comes to get us. Jesus will do anything. He will lay his entire life down to ensure that you will be with him forever. That you will be with him forever. In Jesus, the Lord atones for our sins. He gives us grace. Are you feeling weak, sinful, burdened? Jesus says, come. I've paid it all. There's nothing more that you need to do. There's nothing more that you can do. Tell him, I need grace. I need forgiveness. I can't stand in your presence unless you give me the grace. Jesus died for our sins and he rose again to give us hope that one day, by faith in him, we too will conquer death. 
that hatred and sin and injustice is not going to win in the end. That at the end, Jesus Christ will gather us together to worship him, to stand in his presence, and to rejoice that it doesn't matter what you come from, doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter how much money you make, that all are welcome without price because he paid our way. And that's what this table is all about, brothers and sisters. As we come to this table, we acknowledge if it were not for the blood and the body of my Lord being broken for me, being poured out for my sins, I would have no right to come. This table tells us that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what sins you think dis- disqualify you. Because of Jesus, you're made right. Because of Jesus, you have a seat at this table. Not for anything you've done, but for what Christ has done for you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, as we turn now to your table, Lord, we pray that you would orient our hearts. Lord, help us to be honest about our sin, about our own secret hatreds that we harbor in our hearts, our own secret idols that nobody knows about except for you. Help us to be honest about those things, oh, Lord. And to come to your table in faith, repenting of those sins, but recognizing, Lord, that you came for sinners. You welcome us in as sinners who you forgive. Lord, standing in your presence, worshiping you, living the life that you call us to live isn't a matter of getting it right all the time. It isn't a matter of having no sin. It's a matter of coming to you in humble dependence upon your grace. So won't you grant that to us as we rejoice and celebrate in the table in just a couple of minutes. And Lord, as we live our lives, would you help us even more to depend upon Christ every day, to acknowledge our need every moment, that if it were not for the blood of Jesus Christ, if it were not for his death, his resurrection, that he lived a perfect life in our place, that we would have no spot here at the table. So as we come, we give you all the glory. We say salvation is in your name, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ that we pray now. Amen.